you stand together and read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to take one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 9. We are continuing this morning and next week our ongoing series of studies through the first book of the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis, before we take a three-week break for miscellaneous matters going on here at uh, Redeemer. Uh, meaning, Lord willing, come the new year, we'll pick up the story in Genesis in chapter 15 and God's amazing grace that He showed to Abram when He cut that covenant and as you may be ready yourself for that sermon and for that study, it is indeed one of the most important chapters in all the Bible that, Lord willing, will kick off the new year with in the beginning of January. But today what we want to look at is chapter 13, verse 2, through the end, which is verse 18 of chapter 13. And kids, as I read the text, see if you can pay attention to the number of times that the land is mentioned. Its repetition in this passage underscores its ongoing importance, not just to Abram's story, but to the story of Scripture as well. So let me just read the passage for us, and then I'll pray that God would bless our study, and we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. For if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And then the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. 
But Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. We thank you that all your scripture has been breathed out from your mouth for our good. So we pray that it would do its work among us this morning, that you would correct us where we need to be corrected, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, comfort us where we need to be comforted, and equip us that we might indeed be faithful children. Give us hearts of repentance and faith, minds that are ready to receive the truth. Help me to preach as you say I must. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a great experiment going on in the 1980s in a biodome out west. The scientists were trying to create ideal living conditions for humans and animals and plants. They thought they had everything just right. You know, they had filtered water and air, purified light and all the like, as best they could tell, all the essential conditions needed for humans, animals, and plants to flourish and thrive. And everything seemed to be going well except one matter. The trees kept falling over. They discovered that whenever the trees would grow to a certain height, they would just fall over, like someone had cut them down at their base. And it befuddled them for quite a while as to why exactly the trees couldn't stay upright in the midst of their utopian environment. And then the scientists finally figured out what was going on, is that one of the ideal, essential conditions, at least for trees, that they had missed out on was wind. You might know that a tree's root system needs wind in order for it to be strong. For as a tree blows one way, the roots on the other side lift, and therefore they need to seat ever more deeply in the soil. And then when the tree gets blown the other way by the wind, the opposite side likewise needs to grow deeper into the earth that it might be strong. Trees, in a very real sense, need the testing power of wind if they're to deepen and to strengthen. And as we continue to study the life of Abram in Genesis, what we're studying is a man who is continually undergoing tests and trials. And what we're seeing over and over is a truth that is subsequently talked about much in Scripture, is that the Christian faith needs testing. It needs trials in order that it might strengthen and deepen. A tested faith tends to be a faith that you can trust. But a faith untested, you never know what's truly there until it meets sorrows or sufferings, hardships or hurts. And we saw last week Abram was tested right after God called him and gave him these great promises at the beginning of chapter 12. If you were with us last week, we saw that not long after it seems that Abram was settled in the land of the promise, suddenly that land that was supposed to be land of blessing became land of cursing as it was now just full of famine. It couldn't support the man of promise and his family, and so Abram had a choice to make. Was he going to stay in the land of promise, trusting in God's power to provide for him, even when all seemed impossible? Or was he going to trust in his own strategies and schemes and strength 
And of course, if you know the story at the end of chapter 12, Abram trusts in his own wisdom. There's self-reliance that's permeating the story. He goes down to Egypt, and in so doing, he puts the promise in peril because his wife, Sarai, she falls into Pharaoh's hands. And the reason the promise is in peril is because Sarai is the queen of the promise. The ongoing story of Genesis makes it clear that it's from Abram and Sarai that the promised offspring must come. And here's Sarai in the enemy's hands. But we saw God delivered Sarai back to Abram through plagues upon Pharaoh's house, uh, which told us that God protects His promise even when His people's faith may fail. And we come this morning to another test to Abram, but it's not a test of famine as much as it's a test of a consequence of fullness. This is a passage that many scholars and people who have studied Genesis don't know exactly what to do with. Uh, You can pull out any number of books on Genesis and you'll quickly find preachers and theologians divide on what is the essential purpose and point of this passage. I think one scholar gets it right when he says this is a test and trial for Abram. He was hoping to become a great nation, yet now, even though he was still childless, he was compelled to separate himself from his brother's son, who was as to him a son. And we're going to see more of that along the way, especially in the middle section of our passage. It's a test and trial, once again, just in a different way to Abram. Is he going to trust that God has the power, has the wisdom, has the ability to provide for him, even when it seems that all earthly possibilities have evacuated the scene. And so that's the main theme that we have before us this morning. God will provide for His people, even when it seems altogether impossible. God will provide for His people. So kids, did you notice how many times the text mentions the land? Seven times. Have you counted right? You have seven times the land mentioned in this passage once again displaying its emphasis and importance. And so along the way, I just want to walk through three different sections in this passage that give us something about what's going on with the land. First, we're going to see a problem in the land. Second, a parting from the land. Thirdly, a promise about the land. So first of all, the problem in the land. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 13. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, if you were with us last week, we said there was something of a wordplay going on in this verse with chapter 12, verse 10. If you glance down and skip your eye up to chapter 12, verse 10, the same Hebrew word is used in each verses. Just as the land was heavy with famine in chapter 12, so Abram returns to the land heavy in wealth after his sojourning in Egypt. But he's not the only wealthy person in his family. Look at verse 5. We're told that Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So here's the beginning of the problem. Notice verse 6. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together in the land. You'll see in verse 7, therefore their servants, their herdsmen are at strife. They're at odds with one another. And notice what's going on then as it relates to the land. This is the promised land. That's so supposed to sustain God's people. And we're told here that it can't even sustain two different families that are part of God's covenant family. And you'll see part of the reason for that even in verse 7. And we're told the Canaanites and Perizzites were living in the land. 
And if you want to know how people tend to go wrong on interpreting this passage, just notice what they do with chapter 7. More often than not, in Christian tradition and history, people have said that verse 7 is something of a warning to Christian people not to live at odds with each other because the outside world is looking in. You know, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were seeing that Abram and Lot and their servants were at odds with one another. What kind of witness this was for the truth and the harmony and peace of life under Yahweh. But that's not the point really at all. Uh, The point is, is that the Canaanites and Perizzites were already living in the land. They had the best of choice plots. They had all the best watering holes. They had the best pastures on which to graze their livestock. And so as Abram and Lot and their families now coming into a land already occupied, they're on the outskirts, the outlying plots of the promised land, trying to make their way, trying to find provision. And the outskirts, at least, can't sustain both families. That's the problem that's going on, a problem of of sustenance. What are you going to do? What is Abram going to do? And hopefully it does strike you in some way as the scene continues on. If you notice again verse 3 and 4 that we mentioned last week, uh, you see as Abram returned from Egypt to the land, he quickly went about his ordinary practice of setting up an altar and worshiping God and calling upon the name of the Lord. It was this moment of consecration that seamlessly flows into verse 5 and following a moment of conflict. It's not unlike what we said last week is happening in chapter 12, that spiritual tests tend to follow spiritual triumphs. And some of you might know how consecration often gives birth, it seems like, to conflict. Maybe you're with God's people in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, and you've enjoyed your time exalting and glorifying God, and you've returned home, and it's like immediately when you cross the threshold, griping and grumbling ensue. Conflict seems to have replaced the consecration. The gratitude is all gone. Or particularly those of you who are younger parents, maybe you wake up early in the morning to try to have a a moment of solitude and communion with the Lord, and you get one, and it's sweet, and it's encouraging, and it's joyful. But then your kids wake up (laughs) on the other side of the bed, and that moment of consecration, isn't it? Seemingly like now it's a day of spiritual warfare. And this is the essence of the Christian life, isn't it? Fighting for faith in the midst of ongoing struggles. Fighting for trust in the midst of ongoing temptations. There's a problem in the land. It can't sustain the entire family. So what's Abram going to do in the midst of this test? Well, that's what comes next in the parting from the land. I read an article not too long ago from the Washington Post that was titled, Confirmed colon, how standardized testing has taken over our schools. And the article had made this discovery that the average student between the grade of pre-K and 12th grade will take something like 112 different tests in order to tease out what's really there in terms of their intellectual ability and what they remember in their education And some of you students might recognize, yes, indeed, my life seems like nothing more than one test and one exam after another, week after week, month after month. And if you know something of Abram's life, it's almost as though his spiritual life is the exact same way because you can't really turn a page of Scripture with Abram, the focus of the story, without him running into a test, a trial of some sort. And there's a test going on here, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, but the question is, what is the exact test 
that is put before Abram in this moment with this problem in the land? Well, you'll see something of it if we begin to notice what we're told in verse 8. Abram says to Lot. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute about this man named Lot. What do you know about Lot? Kids, students, what do you know about Lot? What's his relationship to this man named Abram? Well, we do know from the end of chapter 11 that Lot was Abram's brother Haran's son. So Lot was Abram's nephew. And then we also know from the end of chapter 11 that Haran, Lot's father, died when Abram's extended family was still in Ur. And then what we know, if you glance back to chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, that it was only Lot, of all of the extended relatives that's mentioned as traveling with Abram into the promised land. And then stunningly, if you know the whole story on Lot, if you got your way to 2 Peter, Lot, who gets a bad rap throughout Scripture, is called by Peter, the apostle of God. Lot is the righteous man who stood in Sodom and Gomorrah. Justified before the Lord is what Peter says. So we have something of a man of God here. That's Abram's nephew, but it's going with Abram into the promised land from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now what you need to know about Abram and Lot's relationship, according to the customs of the time, as best we can tell, in all likelihood, as maybe the years went by, certainly as the miles passed by and they journeyed into the promised land, Lot was becoming less and less Abram's nephew and much more Abram's adopted son. Who is going to get Abram's inheritance should he have died there unexpectedly and quite early? It would have been Lot. He was, in Abram's mind, from an earthly perspective, the chosen offspring. Abram's always grasping for offspring. That's why by chapter 15, he's going to say, well, my servant Eleazar, he's the heir to all of my wealth and riches, isn't he? Always looking for something of a human answer to the problem of offspring, because it is a problem, isn't it? We've been told already that Sarai was barren. She couldn't have any children. What's Abram going to do with God's promise of offspring. So here's the test. Will he keep Lot to himself in the promised land? Because Lot is the expected one to receive all of the inheritance. Or, because they can't survive together in the promised land, is he going to let him go? And you see, he passes the test, doesn't he? He lets him go, quite simply, verse 8 and 9. Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, and if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, the old preachers would call Abram's generosity in this moment the courtesy of faith, because he's the senior member of the family. He's the one that gets the right, or ordinarily would have reserved right, to pick the best parts of the land. But what he's giving Lot instead is the first pick in the land draft. And you need to see a couple of different things from Lot's choice and how they're instructive to us. First, you'll notice in verse 10 that it was all a choice about visualization. You see verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. He looked up, he saw that it was good. 
So good, in fact, it was well-watered. Abundant vegetation surely was going to come from this place. It was going to be a resting spot for his wealth. And students, what you need to know is that Genesis, in very strong and sometimes subtle ways, is giving you a spirituality of the eye. Eve looked and saw that it was good, and she took it. Lot looks and sees that it's like Eden and Egypt and takes it. And oftentimes what Genesis is telling us is that you can't trust your eyes. What looks right, what looks good, what looks beautiful, what looks pleasing, what looks satisfying is actually the wrong choice, the much more foolish choice. And you'll see that even highlighted as the text continues because it's not just about visualization. Notice the direction Lot goes in verse 11. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Now, if you've been with us for several weeks, our studies in Genesis, going to the east is a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing, right? The end of Genesis chapter 3, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. And which way do they go? To the east. Genesis 4, verse 16, after he murders his brother Abel, Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and goes where? To the east. Genesis 11, verse 2, the people continue to migrate further to the east to build what? The city of Babel. And here's Lot journeying further to the east. The direction is not only important, also the nearest habitation. You'll see verse 12 and 13. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot clearly thought he was going to a place that was almost as though it would be placing his tent among the gates of paradise. Uh, But instead he's placing his family into a spot of the enemy. He's almost, if you know the story in the ensuing chapters, plunging his family into the pits of hell, all because he looked and saw that it was good. Lot and Abram part then, don't they, from the land. And if you want to know why it is a test for Abram, why it was something of a trial if he was going to part with his adopted son in this moment, Notice God's word of immediate kindness as now we get the promise about the land in verse 14 and following. The Lord said to Abram after Lot separated from him. You know, you can pause right there. It doesn't give us a a sense. Now, there there may have been a period of time between Lot actually making the decision to leave and Lot leaving and then Yahweh coming to speak to Abram. But if you're feeling out the timing of the passage right, it's almost as though, because as best we can tell, they're probably about 2,800 feet in the air on this hill that would have been in Bethel, so you can look out far as the eye can see to the vast expanse around the area, and it's almost as though Lot has just made his choice. Abram has given him the right to separate, and he proceeds down the hill, and then it's immediately as though Yahweh speaks to Abram, and notice what he says. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Look around, Abram. All that the light touches, that will be yours. It's almost as though God is going to do for Abram what Abram did for Lot. Give him the land. Give him his choice of where 
he would stay. And it's a command that comes with promises, doesn't it? First is the promise of a place. You see that, verse 15 and 17. God says, All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. If you skip down to verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. In the ancient world, what you would get oftentimes, rulers and kings and Hittite and Egyptian culture in particular, they'd come to a place that's within their kingdom. And one of the first things they would do is they would go about this ceremonial walk around the boundaries of the kingdom, uh, around the boundaries of that plot of land. And it was a walk that symbolized their rule over all of that land. And here's God telling Abram, do the same thing. Walk the entire expanse of the promised land. Because it's not this walking tour of inspection as much as it's this walking tour of dominion. I will give you every piece of that land. It's a promise of place, but it's not just, of course, to Abram himself, is it? It's also to his offspring. And notice verse 16. God says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. My kids, I don't know if you've ever seen a cup full of dust. You may have seen a cup full of dirt. But parents, if you wanted to give your children an interesting Lord's Day activity, go home and find just a tablespoon of dust and say, count it. (laughs) And then the kids would be like, this is impossible. I can't count this dust. There's so many particles in this dust. I can't separate this dust. What are you giving me this dust to do? I can't count the dust. It's the point of what God is saying to Abram, isn't it? You can't count how many offspring I will bring into your family. I will provide when everything seems impossible. Just as numerous as the stars are in the sky, the sands are on the seashore, the dust is in all of the earth, God says. So numerous will your offspring be. So powerful is God to provide for His people according to His promise. There's a man named John Howland who was an indentured servant on the Mayflower when it set sail in 1620 to reach the New World. One evening he wanted to go top ship to get some fresh air and when he got up there on the deck, the ship immediately turned and rocked violently and he was thrown overboard. Yet he happened to be able to lay hold of this howl rod on his way overboard and he just dangled there desperately long enough for the crew to realize that a man was overboard and they hauled him back into the ship. And by the time he got to America and worked off his indenture, he married a young woman named Elizabeth Tilly. They had 10 children. Those 10 children gave this pilgrim 88 grandchildren. And scholars have done studies and said, 400 years on, He now has something like 2 million descendants living in America, some of whom you might know. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Humphrey Bogart, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, both Presidents Bush from one pilgrim, numerous offspring from one pilgrim, innumerable descendants. And what you get in our text today is a story of offspring promised to one pilgrim named Abram. 
It's the way the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 tends to reflect on Abram as it speaks of his story in Genesis. He's an exile. He's a stranger. He's a sojourner. He's a pilgrim. He just wanders around, the text says, looking for the city, the heavenly city to come, the city without foundations. So what I want to do as we begin to close down our meditation on this text is help you see a couple of things that this text tells us about the pilgrim life. For you might know that 1 Peter tells us that all of us in Christ Jesus are sojourners on this earth, wandering pilgrims making our way to the celestial city. And the first thing that you do find in Abram's life is that the pilgrim life is a praise-saturated life. Look again at verse 18. Abram moved his tent. That's the sign of his pilgrim wanderings. He's always just kind of pitching his tent and moving around the land. And he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, we told you this last week, didn't we? It's like everywhere Abram goes, here, there, and everywhere, he builds an altar, this tiny tower of permanence to the great name of Yahweh, this tiny tower on which he would offer sacrifices to atone for sin, sacrifices to proclaim the greatness of Yahweh's name. Everywhere he goes, one of the ordinary responses, first things he does is he praises God with an altar. I wonder if everywhere you go, praise tends to be that important and ordinary. We've just lived a week, haven't we, of Thanksgiving break, in which Thanksgiving gratitude and praise maybe is more in the forefront of our mind than weeks else in the new year. But what about yesterday? What did you praise God for yesterday? Do you remember intentional, slow prayer of praise unto the Lord yesterday? A pilgrim life is a praise-saturated life, but certainly, most significantly for this passage, the pilgrim life is a promise-dependent life. If you keep reading through Abram's story, soon he's going to get his name changed to Abraham. Over and over, God keeps reminding him of these same promises. I will give you this land. Your offspring will take hold of this land. I will give you offspring greater than you could ever imagine. Promises are the means by which he is enabled to persevere in his pilgrim life. He's not to live like Lot by sight, but he's to live by faith, faith in God's promises. And I wonder if you have this pantry of promises stored up in your heart on which your faith might feed, on which your life might find fuel. If you don't, I'm not so sure how you can live the Christian life without Dependence on God's promises. But there's something interesting going on with these promises. If you look again at verse 14. I'm preaching out of the ESV. Many of you are reading out of the ESV. And there's a word in the Hebrew that isn't translated in the ESV. And it's the word now. Three-letter word now. If you've got NASB in front of you, New American Standard or King James, you'll see now in your Bible. And you might think, Jordan, what's the significance of now? Well, much more than you might originally or initially think. It's a word that shows up about 400 times in the Old Testament. And overwhelmingly and ordinarily, it's translated as please. So it doesn't kind of remove the command of verse 14, but it does tenderize it with this fatherly compassion. You are watching Lot leave. Now, Abram, look up. Look at the land. All of it will be yours. You and your offspring will take this land. 
But more pointedly, Abram only hears it three times according to Genesis, this word now. It's always at a time of testing to tease out his faith. He hears it in verse 14 of chapter 13. You can mark this down. Verse 5 of chapter 15, God says it too. He takes Abram out, says, go out, look up into the night sky. Now see if you can count the stars in the sky. So great will your children be in their number. The third time, final time, he hears it. Genesis 22, verse 2. Now take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. Now go do this. Now, Abram, I'm putting you on the pathway of faith in my promise to provide. Innumerable children, when the world says, you'll never have a child. Or, now Abram, I'm putting you on the path to trust in my promise to provide even trusting the New Testament says that I can raise this child from the dead whom I've just told you to sacrifice on an altar to me. I suppose there's a genuine sense, isn't there, that the Lord might be lifting our gaze right now to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, now look to Christ who is the offspring of Abraham who proves that God can do the impossible Can mankind atone for their sin? Can mankind wash away their iniquity? Can mankind earn God's favor, righteousness, justification? Can mankind demand a place at the table at God's heavenly home? Of course not. It's utterly impossible. So God sent Jesus Christ to do the impossible. The eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, to take the place of sinful people. So that by faith, Galatians says, as we read earlier, you might be offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. God will provide for his people even when all seems lost and utterly impossible. And you need to look no further than the offspring, Jesus Christ, to know that God is able to bring his promises to pass. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are a God who is kind and merciful to us who are slow and weak in faith. We pray that you would lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might run our pilgrim life, this race with endurance, trusting in him, So comfort us, we pray, in your promise. Strengthen us in the grace of Jesus Christ as we want to be your people of faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.